second lesson this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 15, verses 1 to 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, This fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there would be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, and if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, and sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me. For I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I want to do just a little introduction about our series today. We are actually going to be preaching on Psalm 27 and we, as we read the Psalms, we're going to be preaching through the Psalms, but our uh, tethered gospel text will change according to the lectionary, and we'll put that in conversation with the Psalms, but it won't be our focal point. And the reason why the Psalm reading will always be a little earlier in the service is so that our whole congregation, when our kids are here, can have a chance to internalize and sing those verses. Um, And as you get kind of an overview of what we're going to be doing during the course of this time, we're really taking the text, we'll be doing some reflection on it, but then we want to sort of figure out how to embody it. We want to kind of let it sink in, because that's what the Psalms do, right? They kind of sink and seep into our very being, and so we'll be providing plenty of reflection and space for all of that to happen during the course of this ongoing series. So just wanted to, and we'll continue to help folks understand that, but that's a little bit about what we'll be up to in the next few weeks. So I wanted to chat today about Psalm 27, and I wonder, you don't have to raise your hand, in fact, don't raise your hand, but there, my guess is that based on current statistics, there are probably folks in this room who struggle to some degree with a level of anxiety, all right, I know I have. Or maybe you have a friend who has struggled deeply with anxiety. And anxiety is, you know, it's different things. Sometimes anxiety is just, I'm really afraid about this particular moment, and that's not to be minimized. And sometimes anxiety is debilitating. It means you can't get out of bed. It means you can't go to work. It means that there's something sort of within your soul that sort of shrivels, um, and you can't sort of figure out how to rise above it. And if you've ever experienced anxiety, you know that anxiety defies rationality. It defies rationality. For example, for those who are fearful of flying, how many times have you heard this sentence? Well, it is far more likely for there to be challenges in the road on a car than it is in an airplane. 
Now, if you've heard that sentence and you struggle with anxiety, my guess is that the sentence doesn't often help you during the times in which you are in the throes of that anxious place. The sentence is rational, the sentence is true, but it doesn't help because anxiety defies rationality. And we are learning all sorts of things now about anxiety and fear and how they impact our mental well-being. And one of the important things that we're learning is that these are really, really valid experiences. That the folks who are suffering from them, they're not making something up. They're not just weird in the head. They actually have something within their physiology that is creating this situation where they are dealing with a sickness that is around fear and anxiety. So when we have friends who are struggling with that, we enter into relationship with them as, though with, as with anybody else who is in a struggle with a very valid illness. And these experiences, they're not helped by rationalization. And so we need to be able to create space within our faith and within our community We need to be able to create space that allows for fear and anxiety to be real. For fear and anxiety to be real. And I can tell you, as a person who has suffered from fear and anxiety, that I can tell you, and I'll speak for myself, that I know that when I am gripped by this particular uh, form of illness, that I am not my best self. When this has a grip on me, I am not living my best self. And so I recognize for myself that it is a valid thing that happens, and yet I also recognize for myself that it is not a place that I want to live indefinitely, that I want to constantly be trying to figure out what sort of healing road I can embark on to move through that, right? So while it is valid, it is not often the hallmark of health and how it is that we want to live together in community. And so while I'm not a therapist and I'm not in any way going to pretend to be a therapist today, and this sermon will in no way provide a manual for arriving to a place of fear and anxiety, what I want to do is to provide a theological foundation for us to understand that these emotions and experiences are real and that we do not, as the people of faith, need to keep them silenced. They are not in opposition to our faith, okay? That is one of the common misconceptions that we have about fear and anxiety is that these things are somehow working in opposition to our faith. Obviously, if we're afraid, we don't have enough faith. No, friends, that's not the case. Sometimes that circulates out there as a misnomer, and what we need to make space for and hear in our text today is that these two things live together. The Psalms, above any other text within our sacred scripture, are very insistent upon naming the realities of what it means to be human. They do not let us escape from the actual, not the imagined, but the actual internal landscape of what it means to be human. The Psalms are constantly naming things that in a way we kind of want to pull away from. But part of what they're doing is charting out the landscape of being human so we can put that in conversation with what it means to be a person of faith. 
And if you have ever been in a civil environment or a civil atmosphere, uh, meaning a non-religious space where the Psalms are read, you've experienced how this language can speak to people on multiple levels of multiple communities, right? The Psalms have a way of sort of piercing us, all of us. And part of the reason why they do that is they don't shy away from the actual space of what it means to be human. Many of the Psalms, and Psalm 27 is no exception, they take for granted that we actually live in a cosmos. In a cosmos, not just a planet, but a cosmos where the one who has set this whole thing in motion, the creator of the world, has an actual loving investment in the world. And that's an assumption that the Psalms make, right? They're always moving in that direction. They sort of push us to say, we're not just out here spinning alone. There is a person, there is a divine being who has a loving investment in the stake of our future. And so the Psalms take all of the imagination and the history of Israel, and you can see this, we'll sort of chart it out as we go through it. They take the story of Moses, and they take the story of David, and they sort of throw these things into conversation with this idea that the one who has created this whole thing still has a loving investment in it. And in that, like an artist or like a poet, or I shouldn't even say like, because the Psalms are written by artists and poets, they're one of our biggest collections of poetry that we have within our sacred text. They play with our history and our imagination. And they put the creator of the cosmos in conversation with life as it is. Not life as we wish it would be, but life as it is. And this is the great gift of the Psalms. Now, as we move into this space, I'm not going to lie. The Psalms can be frustrating. There's lots of R-rated text in the Psalms. There's lots of lemon text. Remember, we talked about that last week, that sometimes scripture gives us, if you've ever given a baby at about nine months a lemon and you remember what their face does, Psalms give us all sorts of those too, right? They give us a little bit of like, wait, what? And we're going to be getting to some of those. But the positive is the Psalms, like Quentin Tarantino, and if you don't know who Quentin Tarantino is, he was the director of Pulp Fiction. He's done another recent movie that, believe me, I haven't seen, but I have friends that have seen it, and they said it's really good. Um, But Quentin Tarantino, as a director, will not tolerate squeamishness around human darkness, right? He just won't. Like, he's going to take you into the heart of human darkness, and he is just going to let it explode there and make you deal with the consequences, right? And the psalmist is going to do the same thing. The psalmist is going to take you into the heart of human darkness and say, this is it, people. You deal with the consequences. And we never like that within a worship service. I promise you, we just don't like it. It doesn't sit well. But the more that we can talk about it and the more that we can try to put some framework around this so that we understand that the Psalms give us some language around the depths of human landscape, that is going to empower us to make sense of these texts, right? So that they don't scare us as much as they sometimes can. I want to get quickly to Psalm 27 and just say a few words about it today. So, 
you read sort of the course of Psalm 27, you'll see that around verse 4, there's this word, though. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. Though. When Walter Brueggemann assesses this psalm, Psalm 27, he says that the psalm pivots on the word though. And I think he's absolutely right. Though is a very, very powerful word in this psalm that we cannot let go of because it is the word that helps us to understand that everything that is beautiful in the world, if you read those first few verses, you see this amazing sort of beauty and goodness that exists in the world. And then the word though takes us right into the reality of what it is that we actually have to deal with. Though an army encamp against me, though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. And though helps us to understand that these two realities do not need to be put in a binary. They do not need to be bifurcated. That the goodness of the cosmos and the reality that God is with us and that war rises up against us and that armies encamp against us metaphorically, those things are a reality. They exist within the same space. It is not one or the other. It is always both. It is always both. And so as we live in a world where the goodness of the cosmos is questioned daily, I mean, who does not get on any sort of news media, whether you are reading actual newsprint or listening to the TV, or whether you're flipping open Twitter, or looking at BBC News, like, I don't care what you're doing, even if you're listening to NPR, there is nothing that is going to have you open it and go, wow, everything is great out there today. The goodness of the world is in constant question, regardless of the platform in which you are engaging in the media. The longevity of the cosmos is in question daily, right? The future of what it means to be human is in question daily. It's in question daily. And that's the reality that we all live with. And pretending that it's not there is not an option, right? Pretending that it's all going to go away, that's not an option. Anxiety and fear, they exist in real time, in real space. And, 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 the word of the psalmist is that we do not make any of that stuff go away. We let it be there. We let it speak whatever truth it's going to speak. We let it be there. The, rather, the psalm, the conversation of the psalm says that where deep anxiety lies, there so does deep faith. Where deep anxiety lies, so does deep faith. That these two things are not one or the other, but that they coexist. And I can be scared as you know what. 
and still have an, in, an intuition, a hope, a faith. Maybe it's not even in me. Maybe it's in the community around me that the cosmos is still grounded in the love of a creator that chose it and sustains it and continues to love. These two things exist at the same time. And the Psalms help to give us a language for this deep, deep, deep reality. Well, we all, looking back a few days here, earlier this week, we all remember the deep reality of fear that turned up over 18 years ago. And should we have had the chance to visit the memorial or the museum of 9-11 and let our hands trace across the names of those who were engraved on the memorial there, we know that fear is no small thing. Anxiety is no small thing. And death is no small thing. As people of faith, the gravity and the weight of those things exists just as much, if not more, than it does for any other living being. It makes a dent. It carves a hole in us. And yet, the text of the psalmist helps us to know that the way that we move around that, beyond that, through that, is not so much to garner all of our strength to beat down that grief. That can work for a time, but it doesn't last. We have to continue to let the grief speak. And if anybody paid in or tuned in to uh, some of the folks who shared their testimony about relatives who passed away during 9-11, there was one woman in, in particular who shared that this year she was crying more than any other year in the past. Because that's just how grief goes. To pretend that it goes away is not the real story. It lives. It lasts. It evolves. But it evolves alongside of another voice. And that's the story of faith. That we live in a world where the story of grief and the story of anxiety evolves alongside of this other voice. I want to give just a tiny bit of space here for art and for reflection because the psalms are songs and they are poetry. And poetry, as we all know, is not creed. It is exploration. And our brains need a chance to explore and to think. And this is the permission that the psalms give us. So I'm going to read us a poem from Denise Levertov. Anybody familiar with Denise's work? So, Denise Levertov was born in the UK. She's actually buried in Seattle. Her father was Jewish, and he later became an Anglican priest, and she immigrated to the United States in the 1950s, and she found herself as a poet in the middle of a whole bunch of political movements. She spoke to the world of El Salvador, she spoke to the world of Vietnam, and she was at times accused of um, being a communist during the time where that was a deep threat within the American landscape. In fact, she was nominated to be the Poet Laureate, but she was not chosen because of her perspective around some of these political uh, accents. The poem that I'm going to read today is from an anthology called Making Peace. 
and it was released between the years of 1968 and 1972. But on a hill in Dorset, while the bells of Netherbury pealed beyond the grove of the great beeches and the Herefords, white starred on tawny ample brows, grazed slow below us only days ago, Bet said, there was a dream I always dreamed, over and over, a tunnel and I in it distraught, and great dogs blocking each end of it, and I thought I must always go on dreaming that dream trapped there. But Mrs. Simon listened and said, why don't you sit down in the middle of the tunnel quietly? Imagine yourself quiet and intent, sitting there, not running from blocked exit to blocked exit. Make a place for yourself in the darkness and wait there. Be there. The dogs will not go away. They must be transformed. Dream it. That way, imagine your being, a fiery stillness, is needed to transform the dogs. And Beck said to me, get down into your well. It's your well, go deep into it, into your own depth, as in to a poem. The Lord is our light and our salvation. Whom shall we fear? Though, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for this text, for this psalm, for the way that it gives us a language and an understanding of how to make sense of our faith in the face of all that we are up to today. We ask this in your name. Amen. Friends, as we stand and rise, we will sing verses 1 and 3 from our final or from our